Welcome to the podcast of data and analytic in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Ben Nichols. Ben is the head of product at IMS, where they provide fully integrated service of conversational AI, RPA, electronic, and mobile communication. Ben is also an adjunct professor of data science at Syracuse University, where he conducts lecture on NLP database for data science. We started the interview by talking about the past experience of Ben working for a large corporation versus a growing startup. Ben shares some of his the pro and core working on each of the site. Now this will be useful for the younger analytic professional who is facing and needing to make the similar decision when it comes to their career development to talk about using the conversa- conversational AI and hyper automation platform for the banking sector. Ben share some of the technology they use to in building the chatbot and how it is being used to assist the customer for the credit union and community bank. Not only Ben talk about the technology and use cases and really went into sharing some of the deep insight that he has got and how this would benefit the customer and why the customer would find such tool useful the customer experience for them in using the banking services. There are a number of the appealing benefits and while this is being used by the credit union and community banks in the state, I agree that how this could be translated into many other banking industries in different jurisdictions. As Ben is a product guy, we can't help but dwell into so much discussion of development and product management and how one should always look at the bigger picture and look further ahead of the future so that you can prepare and design your system in as many generic cases as possible. If you are the senior executive who are still trying to figure out how to use NLP, i.e. natural language processing for your customer or for your organization, Look no further for this episode. Not only Ben talk about chatbot, but he also share few different ideas and few different areas how NLP could be equally used experience at your bank. If you are an engineer guy, this equally will be the episode for you in terms of how the product management and product development can come into play when developing an platform. If you enjoy the discussion between Ben and I, make sure you click the subscribe button so we can continue to bring you more discussion on how business leaders are running high that is enabled by the data science. I'm your host Jason Ten and thank you for listening. Good evening, Ben. Welcome to the Analytic Show podcast. Super excited to have you here, darling, all the way from doing today. I'm doing so well, Jason. Thanks for having me on today. Really excited to talk about data science analytics and all the things that fall into that world. Yes, I know you're going to talk about the natural language processing. So I'm super excited to ask you those knowledge from the books that you do. Now, before we start on the heavy topic, let's talk a little bit about the career because something that I'm always fascinated is different kind of the career path that 
one place to another and how each of these previous roles, they just come to work together to progress in one's career. Now, yours is a really interesting one because you always have been all about the data from the beginning. And well done, man. So whatever your roles were, have you, all, you have always kept around the data analytic. Do you plan to stick with the data analytic, data science from the very, very beginning or it just happened? That's a good question. So I would definitely say it didn't happen by accident, but I wouldn't also say that it was entirely intentional. So let's chalk it up to career momentum. I'm about 12 years into my career in the analytics space. And from the very start, I had two really foundational internships that both worked in numbers, spreadsheets, databases, which really gave me a taste of what my undergraduate degree in mathematics could do out in the wild. And at the time, my second internship was actually titled analytics analyst or some made up phony name that they give interns. And I was like, what is this analytics thing? And I did a little research and I realized that this is the buzzword that I'm going to chase after, after I graduate and, and see how far it takes me. So analytics at the time, this is circa 2010, 2011, was just starting to take over from the business intelligence kind of domain space. And occasionally you'd also hear those niche words like informatics, but certainly terms like data science hadn't yet been mashed together, data and science in the mainstream. So maybe there were certain circles that were talking about data science, but that wasn't really much of a popular topic yet. So once I had those two internships, that's kind of where my career trajectory took form, right? I mentioned that momentum. And I think it's probably three primary things that kept me on that, that straight and narrow path of, of staying in data science and analytics. The first one is definitely with this emerging technology and the exponential increase in data velocity year over year in the, the uh, early 2010s, there was just an overt need and in-demand skill set in the market. So I know that following sort of the, the financial collapse in 2008, job market was a little bit stagnant and kind of difficult for some early graduates. But I knew with my background in mathematics and analytics, I'd be able to kind of find my place there. So that's the first thing is really so warm, a warm opportunity there. The second thing is that analytics can really both be a role. So you can definitely hold an analytics position, but it can also really very much be an applied philosophy. And in doing so, kind of approaching that philosophical sense, you don't have to hold a title like analyst, but instead you can actually just apply that mindset really to any position within the knowledge economy. It is vertical agnostic, it's industry agnostic. And in fact, you can both hold an analytics position in front of office and in the back. So was it hard to stay in analytics and data science? Not really. I really want to make sure that everything I do is data-driven, no matter if I'm working in the product side, on the sales side, the support side, all of which I've held at some certain points in my career. So I suppose that's kind of how we got where we are. I love it, especially your idea about having that mindset, that analytic mindset. I think it would be really useful that we do in life and you do in life. Now, I want to ask you, you have worked at large organizations like IBM, Morgan Stanley, and also as like new and growing startup. I would love to know your views between working at a startup versus working at a large corporation, especially for those younger professionals, if they are ever have to facing this sort of uh, decision in their life, maybe insight from you as well. Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought this particular question up. It's a topic I've really considered at length, especially working at a startup currently, as I'll probably get to in a moment. There's a lot of momentum about creating processes and, and a lot of that I'm borrowing from the larger corporations. So in case it's, it's not clear, I spent four years at Morgan Stanley at the beginning of my career. So that was really foundational. And right before I jumped on, um, I did a quick Google search and Morgan Stanley today has around 60,000 global employees. So that's the scale we're talking. And the current organization I work for is actually really a semi-autonomous unit of 10 uh, within a company of about 200. So I really like to think that I'm, I'm currently working at an incubating startup within a, a mid-sized organization that's been around for a couple of decades at this point. So those are the scale, 60,000 versus 10. Now, I'm sure I, potentially you've had other folks on this podcast before that maybe have had similar experiences, but I would say that the biggest difference, and it's probably a cliche, is really the dichotomy between absolute order, which you'll find at a Morgan Stanley, and absolute entropy that you'll find at a startup. So it's a very much beginning and end of a universe kind of um, business perspective. So on the large side, 
this is by no means a sort of a criticism of Morgan Stanley. I had an amazing um, opportunity there. I had some great managers, but certainly one of the things that I took away after working there in re reflection was really about finding efficient ways to move as fast as possible in a very rigid organizational structure that had lots of financial controls, processes, and procedures that had been developed over decades, right? So Morgan Stanley's been around since I think the 1920s, maybe probably earlier. I shouldn't even lie that I know Morgan Stanley history. So with that in mind, from ideation of a new concept or project that you'd want to undertake to the implementation of a solution would take months, if not years, if not, it would just stall because of, because of tape. And a great example is actually, I was interested to do a project on the team that I was working on. We were working on a, um, a conversational engine for bringing together financial research to be prepared and sent back to our financial advisors at Morgan Stanley. And I wanted to put together kind of like a marketing calendar to figure out uh, which particular sets of content should be delivered either weekly, monthly, or maybe ad hoc based on sort of readership efficacy and, and how people were interacting with that content. And I just so happened to have a friend in a different organization at Morgan Stanley, who these organizations never talk to each other, of course. And he had a license for something called ClickView. ClickView is a data visualization tool that may still be popular. I haven't seen it on the market in a while. And in doing and having that relationship, he, he lent me a license, which is definitely, I'm probably going to, in hindsight, get, get called upon by the Morgan Stanley folks. He lent me a license and I went ahead and actually made this application that the rest of my team used and was able to make decisions based upon. So that's just an example of doing things off the books that I really shouldn't be doing. So that's, that's my opinion of large organizations. On the exact opposite side of that spectrum, you have the startup, right? So currently the startup, my current startup there can be days when it's just absolute chaos, not because of anything that anyone can do. It's just that there are so many firsts that you're constantly, constantly experiencing, constantly facing that you're always sort of threatened by reinventing the wheel. And a great example of this is actually not at my current startup, but my, my previous one. We needed a developer on my team without having to go through the traditional R&D channels just because they were really wrapped up in a new project and a new release. So I went to my manager and I said, hey, I, I really need a developer to help me with this. And specifically, we wanted to create a data ingestion pipeline using Airflow, which is sort of a, an ETL tool that's based in the cloud, written in Python. So he's like, go for it. But you need to write a contract and you need to work with legal to approve this. Now, I'm just the analytics guy and suddenly I have to draft legal contracts. And that definitely fell outside of the kind of typical thing that one would expect of, of a person not in finance, not in legal, not in sales. So I went and drew a contract and we hired the guy and, and it went really, really worked really well. It was just a, it's a great example of how startups you can get, you can get bogged down in a lot of areas for which there was no process simply because it, it never has happened before. No one had ever hired a third-party developer before, so we didn't have a, we didn't, there was no process. So just to be clear though, if it's not already apparent, I love working at startups. They've definitely spoiled me on large organizations. Large organizations on the other side are large for a reason, right? They've been around, they're successful, they have opportunities for growth and hiring. And I would highly recommend anyone that's recently graduating to go right into a large organization because that's where you will learn about what it means to be an efficient large organization. I think jumping right into a startup, if that is your view of the world, I don't know that you will ever be able to leave. <laughs> so I definitely think that there are both extremes that work entropy and order, but I do think there's a happy medium somewhere, especially in the startup world where you've addressed most first time things. There are some processes, but at the same time, you still have enough autonomy where each individual can make their decisions about whether or not they want to use the best practice or if they want to go and actually create a new process, which for me is one of my favorite things to do. I love creating processes and, and strategies that I can go and, and see their efficacy in, in, out in the world. I love it. That is a good advice. Now, another aspect of your career, uh, wonderfully blending your work in academia as well as the industry. So... How do you manage that? I know before we start the recording, you were just talking about you spend about 10 to 15 hours on the teaching. Now, my question then is between the two, which one do you enjoy the most? And, and do you get any, any benefit from getting these two distinct parts of the spectrum? Jason, I, unfortunately, I can't tell you which one I like better. I'm going to have to keep that one close to the chest. Otherwise, uh, one of those two organizations will be sad. So I love them both equally. Um, as I would love all of my children. But yes, this is true. For the last four years, I've had the pleasure of, of working at Syracuse University. Specifically, I'm working in the School of Information Studies 
within their master's degree programs. They have three different separate program tracks. They have one in applied data science, one in information management, and one in library science. That's currently where I'm teaching, and I teach three different courses. I teach intro to database management and design. So it's a very much business analytics and business analysis point of view where you kind of digest problems and figure out how to model that data in different information architectures and infrastructures. The second course I teach is an introduction to scripting in Python. This is sort of your... It's the all of the things that the data scientist never wants to do, but really has to do. And it's that 80-20 rule where 80% of the time is spent munging data and cleaning it and making sure that it's, it's viable. Well, someone has to teach you that 80%, and that's, that's that course. And then the final course that I teach is an introduction to natural language processing, which spans sort of the intro to a lot of the algorithms, the pipelining, the industry, and some technologies and toolkits that are out there that are popular in that spectrum. So how do I manage it? delicately. <laughs> I always teach at night. So I teach one night a week and it lasts for about uh, four hours. A different night of the week, I typically hold office hours. And because of the evening aspect of the work, it doesn't affect my day job. The only time it, it can be a little bit tricky is I do the occasional travel for my day job. And now that COVID is starting to subside, that will certainly pick up and, and trade show season late summer, early fall will definitely kind of conflict a little bit with the schedule. But that's where I have the flexibility of still doing remote teaching or being able to reschedule based on the, 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 the organization, I'm sorry, the, uh, the university's permissions. Now, in terms of, I guess, how I approach the two different aspects, there's definitely two different brains going on and each function, either regular work or education, they definitely take problem solving during the day. That's a heavy piece of my work today. No matter what I'm doing, there's a lot of problem solving and troubleshooting. And then in, in the evening, it's very much public speaking focused, coaching focused, and also a lot of active listening where students will bring up new questions or after hours, we'll work together to kind of figure out either side projects or in a lot of instances, there's career coaching. And what's nice though, is that there are actually a lot of parallels between the two operations, both um, working and, and doing the, the academia, specifically when it comes to the being a, a people manager, but also a people teacher. It's pretty much praise on success, guided corrections on mistakes, and coaching individuals to sort out their own problems and paths to, paths to success. So I oversee a team of six. And in doing so, it's it's very much that guided approach. I like to think that I'm a, not a micromanager. I'm very, I'm very sort of goal-oriented and directionally oriented. So it's a lot of course correcting making sure that everyone is working on the project, project and problems in the same direction. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the sort of this coaching mindset that I've, I've been able to develop and accrued throughout my career. But I would say that people don't like if I bring the academics to the office, no one likes to be lectured at. So I do have to be a little bit careful being the teacher in the office on occasion. Well, what is your view, though, on the state of the scene between the academia and the data science talent development? Do you think we are doing enough in the effort to deliver more talents in this space? It's a very difficult question, though. And I think a lot of people tend to see that there is a, a market gap. And I think, in general, people usually point immediately and first off to academia as the root cause of a lot of challenges in that hiring cycle. People are graduating without the right skill sets, or they're, they're graduating with not the right toolkits that they should have developed. But everyone needs to sort of remember that the focus and, and purpose of an education isn't to learn a tool. It's to learn a, a new set of skills and new problem-solving techniques that will allow you to elevate your status within the chosen field that, you, that you're aspiring to break into. So specifically, I can't speak for all of academia from the, the, the professor lens. I can only speak to, to Syracuse University. It's the only university I've ever worked at as an adjunct. And I would just like to say that I have an amazing team that I'm able to work with. And specifically when it comes to the natural language processing course that I'm, I'm engaged with, um, we meet twice, I should, I'm sorry, we meet it once every two weeks and we, we have takeaways and we very much treat it like a, an incubating type of environment where we try to keep up with the latest trends. We make sure that all of the toolkits and what the students are learning are relevant, but at the same time, they're still leaving with a foundation and a set of skills that even if the technology does change, the things that they learn will still be relevant and they can still apply proper problem-solving techniques in order to address those problems. So from an academic point of view, I do think that at least in Syracuse's world, um, we're doing a great job in doing that. If you recall, I mentioned that the title of the actual program is Applied Data Science. So there's definitely 
a perspective when students are leaving the degree program that they are capable in doing the work as soon as they leave, which is why they're taking classes like scripting for data, uh, scripting for data science, natural language processing. They have courses on um, big data at scale. So being able to apply large algorithms for massive data sets. Um, they have courses that are focused on um, the sort of the deep statistical algorithms and deep learning and things like that. So there's definitely a lot of emerging trends that are being introduced, but it's, it's a huge challenge to keep up, right? Every curriculum and every course that is offered by Syracuse, and I believe this is applicable to every university, has to go through rigorous apl uh, application and rigorous oversight in order for that course and curriculum to be approved by a governing body. So in order to keep up with trends that change every two, three, four years, that would imply that you're changing the curriculum every two, three, four years, which becomes a very unwieldy proposition for most people in, in academia. And not to mention, we're working with academics who themselves maybe are not as close to these new emerging trends as someone in industry, because there isn't the pressure to keep learning and keep pushing faster and to hit these efficiencies, because in academia, you really focus much more on the problem-solving aspect, less on the toolkit. So there's definitely a level of expectation now on the, on the professors to keep up with, with emerging technologies, which may not have always been the case historically. So with that all of that in mind, now I want to point my finger at industry. There's a, what I, I don't know, I guess what her official title is, but she's kind of like a, a data science influencer. I think her name is Cassie Kasirikov. She works at Google and she has an... A, <laughs> yes, yes, I heard of that. Yes, her content is incredible. And one of my favorite metaphors from Cassie is businesses hire people who seem to be really good at building microwaves. But what they actually wanted to do was they wanted to hire people into an industrial kitchen that can make good food. So it has a lot to do with hiring people that are great at building new algorithms and, and conceptually applying new techniques to solve for these uh, deep neural networks and these very sophisticated algorithms. But when push comes to shove and they come on and the business expects them to be able to create some sort of recommendation engine for, I don't know, uh, shoes, they don't know, they don't necessarily know enough context to be able to go and apply it. So I do believe that globally, when academia becomes closer to the full purpose of creating what I would define as machine learning engineers, which is really, I think, what the industry needs and is hungry for, much the same way that universities for decades have been producing software engineers. I think once that type of role is being churned out by the universities, I guess, more periodically, more functionally, then we will be closer to fulfilling this sort of missing market opportunity that seems to be the case in, in the industry. And I think sometimes perhaps it also comes down to the individual where they have the ability to look at the big picture or not, as opposed to doing exactly what the instruction is telling them to do. So, missing that. Now, I don't really know what is the answer to solving that question. So I would have to check in with you again and again from time to time uh, to see. And address that. But let's move on and talk about the company that of product at IMS. Share with our listener about the company and what you guys do. Certainly. So IMS is a local business in upstate New York. Um, specifically, the city is Liverpool, which is outside of Syracuse, New York, in central New York. So a lot of terminology going on. And IMS has been around since the mid-1980s and had, has been traditionally focused on um, transactional print and mail by being able to work with local businesses and bulk sort, print, and deliver at a discount. Over the last couple of years, they've really focused on this digital transformation within their own organization by making all of those same transactional statements that they were sending over the mail online. So very often you might work with an organization that posts their bills into a secure portal, or you can log on to your online bank and see statements available. This is the type of technology that IMS has been able to deliver to their customers pretty much across the country for the last 30 years or so. And now over the last about 18 months, IMS is now digitally transforming once again, and now focusing on delivering conversational experiences to that same customer base that they have today. And this conversational experience is sort of the next generation of a lot of the technology that they've been working on, which was transactional information, transactional data sets that were available online will now be available conversationally. So we're actually working with a third party organization that offers a software and we are wrapping our own application bundle across it. So we're using their backend. And in terms of the way that we are positioning it, 
it's very much focused today in credit unions and community banks. So for your global audience, uh, those are two, I would call them small to mid-market personal financial institutions based in, in the United States, as opposed to like your, your Chase's or, or your Wells Fargo, which would be the, the large enterprise type uh, financing options in, in the US. So that's really what we're focused on here at IMS. And as you said, my role is the head of product. And specifically when it comes to the product, we only have one in IMS, which is this conversational platform that we're developing. And it's an amazing, for me, it's a dream job. I've been at it for about a year. And actually I just hit my one year anniversary this week. So it's, it's really exciting. And over the last year, we've grown by about hundred percent. So we've doubled in size. And I think the best part of my job, and I think I mentioned this earlier, working at startups, I really love wearing lots of different hats. And I would say, even if I think about what I worked on yesterday, I bet I can list off probably eight different hats that I wore. I'm confident that oh, I definitely was a recruiter yesterday. Um, I reached out to some people on LinkedIn, trying to find our next uh, development hire. I was a career coach trying to figure out how to make sure that the person that works directly underneath me is moving up into a product management role and, and what that looks like for her career trajectory. I'm definitely a people manager in that same way that I'm a career coach. I'm also the scrum master in a lot of ways for our, uh, our development sprints. We have, like I said, that third-party organization that's helping us in the development process. So I'm a project manager. I'm also the product manager in a lot of cases. So there are pieces of our technology that is very technical and analytical and requires knowledge of NLP. So in those regards, I'm definitely defining how the product should function and work from a product management sales point. Standpoint. I also give demos. So I'm a, I'm a bit of a sales and engineer here and there. And then finally, over the last six months, I've actually learned a little bit about design and have picked up uh, Adobe XD and have been able to create some mock-ups and um, some prototypes so that our development team can kind of run with it. So all that in mind, I'm also a father. I'm also a husband. So I've got many hats, many roles, and uh, that's really why I absolutely love this job. But I will say, since we're on an analytics podcast, the astute listener would realize that I, at no point that I said that I'm an analyst, nor am I a data scientist. And why ever would that be missing? It really comes down to, like I said earlier, I try to maintain a data-driven environment most of the decisions that I make are either founded in an objective reality where I've created heuristics or, or benchmarks for performance, or they're data-driven where I can either do research. Uh, we are a, a Gartner partner, so we, we definitely can lean on them for a lot of industry research and bringing in additional content where we may be blind or, or less informed in an area. And at the same time, I can also do my own research to figure out like how many customers can I predict using this particular software? I do have a background in modeling. That's kind of what I got my, my master's degree in, statistical modeling, modeling and information science. So there's definitely a good piece of that as well. So while I wouldn't define myself as an analyst today, there's definitely a good portion of that baked into all of the other hats that I wear. These conversational AI engine that you mentioned uh, offered by the IMS, I think it also does this thing called hyper-automation platform, and specifically for, for the banking sector. The size of the client that you guys have, it seems to be focusing on the banking sector. Now, without revealing the trade secret, do you mind to elaborate on that for our listener on exactly how this works? benefiting the community banks and the credit units? I'd be happy to. So hyper-automation typically refers to the, the implementation or the usage of AI and another term, uh, robotic process automation, RPA, to generally kind of complete tasks uh, using either a bot or some sort of background process that ordinarily would have been completed by a human. And the way that we approach hyper-automation in the way that we offer our solution is that most of the questions that are being inbounded and handled by individuals at banks and credit unions and community, community banks and credit unions are typically low-hanging fruit, either information that's already readily available on the website, low or, or easy to facilitate processes like resetting an online banking password, or even typical banking operations like getting your account balance, transferring funds from one account to another, even inquiring about loan rates. All of this type of information is typically what the customer service agent at a, at a community bank or credit union are handling. So in terms of that hyper-automation process, we're able to deploy our conversational chatbot and digital assistant, both over the telephone network, but also over web chat. And by having these two points of contact where the customers are already going, they're able to ask the same types of questions that they would have asked by of their customer experience agents at the bank 
are now being answered by our bot using um, sophisticated NLP and another term, which is an NLU, natural language understanding, which is sort of this combination, intense classification and entity extraction process. So um, those two allow us to handle, handle most of that 80% of the workload. But at the end of the day, our bot is not superhuman. It's not going to take over the world. It's not Skynet. So there's always going to be probably this 20% of use cases where customers are calling in and they want something very specific solved that our bot simply cannot be possibly aware of. So in those cases, we'll be able to transfer them to a live agent and the live agent will be able to assist the user or the, the customer as they would have ordinarily when before our software was deployed. And all that is to say is that we're not here to replace people. We're here to reduce the simple tasks that they are obligated to do so that they can be freed up to do the high value tasks. Because a lot of those cases, those 20% are typically very sticky, right? If a customer service agent does a really good job when you're the most vulnerable or when you're in the most dire need, especially when it comes to finances, those can be really impactful and powerful experiences that will, that will make you a long-term customer. So that's definitely a, a large piece of our value proposition when it comes to how we position this in the marketplace. I can imagine how these NLP in your call center and the voice channel, and as the technology is getting better and better, I can equally relate to its progress. Now you can probably tell already, and a lot of you can tell already that I obviously would have different accent than American or the Australian simply because of my upbringing. And in the past, I often get annoyed that they could never really recognize my accent or whatever I speak, right? But these days, it is becoming a lot, a lot more powerful in the telephone or the voice channel. What I'm curious to know, though, is, as you mentioned, that it also get deployed to the web channel. What I am trying to get my head into the internet banking of this community bank or the credit union, technically, I would be able to just press the button and get the things done. Why would people would still be wanting to do the conversation? Hey, transfer from account A to account B, or hey, pay X, and the account number of X is ABC123. Why would they want to do that? I'm curious. That's a bit that I cannot quite get my Certainly. No, it's definitely a question that we face very often. And there's a couple of different answers really depending on the audience asking. The first one is that I think voice enablement in sort of consumer electronics is actually becoming much more popular. Think of your Alexas, your Siri's, your, your Google assistants. People are now becoming more accustomed to asking for help, asking for assistance of the devices that they're already using commonly. So there's no reason if someone says, well, why wouldn't you just search in Google for that answer? Well, it's more convenient. If you're on a website and you're not exactly sure where to find that button to order checks, but you know in the chatbot, you can click, I would like to order checks. And they would say, oh, welcome, Jason. Good to see you. Can you just verify the last four digits of your uh, tax number? And you go one, two, three, four, and then it orders you checks. And it's that simple. Instead of necessarily having to navigate and find, I know personally on my, I use Ally, which is an online only bank in the United States. I'm, I'm not sure if they're international or not. I can never find how to order checks. So this was a very topical example. Every time I have to go to the little search icon, click order checks. And that's the only, that's the only navigation path I can ever find to actually do that operation. So that's the exact type of type of opportunity that we can, we can offer. And that's also to say that in the United States, because we're focused on community banks and credit unions, a lot of times the individuals that are using this don't always have readily ready access to the internet. So in terms of offering things over the phone, it's a channel that isn't necessarily even competing with the internet. There are plenty of areas that still don't have reliable communication over, over internet. Um, being able to actually facilitate complex operations like opening account without the internet dying and, and logging you out and having those technical difficulties, where over the phone network, you're guaranteed to have that connection as long as you have either cell service or you can even connect to a landline. So we're definitely tapping into some, some legacy technology in order to facilitate really complex operations. And in terms of, I think, another piece of the question, which is why would someone want to use the service as, as opposed to those other services? I actually don't think that those other services will be around all that much longer. I do think in 10 years, pretty much all of those services will become alternatively serviceable. So your online bank will also be a hybrid conversational experience. 
which will be a hybrid, potentially augmented reality experience. There's no reason that a website is going to be static for the next 10 years. And what we're doing is not solving for immediate needs today, which is, I should say, we are not only solving for immediate needs today. We are also solving for the next two, five, 10 years, 10 years out. So in terms of our, our product roadmap and trajectory, one of the longest term goals is sort of redefining what we believe to be the online banking platform, which will be in our mind, hundred percent voice enabled, which will not only make it more accessible, but also I think more natural to the way that we would engage if we walked into a banking branch. I want to dwell on this topic a little bit deeper, if that's okay with you. You mentioned that the internet call center are the two channels the customer of the credit union or the banks already go to, right? And the keyword there is the channel that they already use. Now, because of that, if we were to our utility app, so in the world of the developer is that WhatsApp and the Facebook Messenger are our go-to channel. This is something that people are already so familiar and so often called utility app because they, they use it multiple times a day. In the world of the China, is like the WeChat. Now, again, if we were to match all of those concepts together, especially in the plan where the app itself can do so many, many, many things. I can't help but to think of imagining a future that you were talking, but imagining a future where we might be able to think together and then we just carry out our, our banking transaction within WhatsApp and, and Facebook Messenger app. Whether it's a good thing or not, I don't want to debate on that, but purely from the psychology, purely from the like it could be the future that it, it may be possible. Absolutely. I think you're really touching on um, something that we've really instilled within our development philosophy at IMS. And that's the channel is not the critical infrastructure. It's really about the conversation management engine that we've developed. And it just so happens that the predominant use cases that, that our customers are most interested in are web chat and telephone. But in fact, once we have plain text as an input, the sky's the limit. We're able to take that same input from a web chat, a telephone, Google, Amazon, Siri. They're all going to be hitting our endpoint, our engine, processing that data and executing the specific intent. The channel is, is, is not the end goal of our software. And in fact, we actually have it built in such a way that you can start a conversation on the telephone and transition to the web app and vice versa. You can actually have the same conversation happening simultaneously on both channels. And perhaps you'd even want to because on the web chat, there are certain things that can be displayed that would really be unwieldy on the telephone, right? If you wanted to hear back the last six transactions, it's a lot easier to see that in a table than to have someone say, you spent $6 at Starbucks on June 15th, 245. You spent $11 at Target. It's not um, a very user-friendly experience to say that type of things over the telephone. So we can actually blend these multimodal experiences because, because of our session manage, management and being able to duly identify our users on multiple channels within our same infrastructure. So there's a lot of super app type conversations that we have. I've never referred to that, but I'm definitely going to start. I love that term that we have going on. And I think you're really touching on an important point about where the market's going on that one. That's really powerful. I wonder to identify the conversation in two different channels and sing them together. That is not an easy task <laughs> to tackle. Now, without revealing any trade secrets again, can you explain a little bit NLP technology in creating conversational AI? I suppose where I come from is more of like giving people more, the business leader in the bank or the credit union around the world, how they can actually, what are the things that empower and why they should be considering this is really something that they need to be doing. Certainly. And I will do my best to not to give away trade secrets. Uh, so in order to, to build a conversational system, as you know, AI does need to be involved. 
And because we're a very lean startup team, at this point in time, we're actually leaning on, on two systems. We're leaning on Google's Dialogflow, which is um, a bot building platform that does the natural language understanding, entity extraction, intent, intent classification, as well as Amazon's Lex products. So by using both of them, we really got to pick and choose where each one has um, advantages and disadvantages and really got to build the system around them, uh, not for them. And in doing so, we're able to convert things like um, speech to text, pass the text through these pre-built machine learning models, and then intelligently take the outputs and manage conversations. So I think a, a lot of people assume that bots is really, it's all about the NLP. There's actually a ton, a ton, a ton of research that really goes into more of the qualitative aspect of managing conversations. So when we really started on this, this journey of building out these conversational experiences, we leaned on two industry experts, one from IBM, his name is Bob Moore, great book on conversational experiences and conversational analysis. And the second is Kathy Pearl from Google, who works on the Google Assistant projects. So those two sort of industry leaders in the conversational space really describe that it's not just the AI and the power and the power there. It's about handling and managing these edge cases and, and the linguistic nuance of how people interact with a machine. And that I think is, is really the secret sauce. So certainly I'm not afraid to share that we're using Amazon and, and Google for, for our AI, but it's really about how we handle that data elegantly and, and process that in, in our conversation engine. And as I mentioned, we also have the ability to facilitate those conversations naturally over multiple channels, um, which really, I believe, gives us a leg up in, in this pretty crowded competitive landscape. Now, moving beyond chatbots, do you think the banking industry can benefit from the NLP technology in other ways? I do. And, and actually going beyond the, the NLP, or I, I should say within the sphere of NLP, because that's really where, where we've been focused, but outside of, let's say, the, the traditional chatbot type technology, this, this NLU that I've mentioned so far, I do think that there are really two big opportunities the first is that we're looking at creating sort of a customer relationship management system, a CRM system that will capture a lot of the information about how banking customers interact with our services and our, and our bot. What are the things that they're commonly requesting? What information have they shared? That's long-term information, things like birthdays, preferences, um, and other information that we can use to actually cater and, and craft a unique experience for them. So when Jason calls in, we recognize him. We know that he always asks on Tuesdays for his account balance, for his, his vacation account, because he's really eager to get away. So we, we can know that and we can actually leverage that and create sort of like a recommendation system on top of our conversational experiences to make it very much like when you go into a local branch and you develop that rapport with your local teller. We want to actually cultivate a very similar experience using, using that service. And then the second one that, that we're heavily exploring is authentication. Authentication in financial services are a huge deal. It's a really big selling point, and it can often make or break the decision for a bank to go with one service provider or another. So in terms of authentication, there are kind of three things I'd really want to touch on. Um, the first is, is voice bio-authentication. So being able to process the voice waveform either actively, so from the movie, uh, there's a movie where the actor says, my voice is my password. So that's, that's called active authentication. And using that very finite waveform, you can determine, is this the same person? Is this a spoof of the person? And, and be able to clarify that this is in fact the right person talking. Then there's passive. Passive is when you've just provided enough speech samples to both create a, a unique set, uh, sort of a unique token of voice. And then as they speak later on with the service, you can continuously determine if it's the same person speaking and Let's say that so you've left the room and someone else comes on and your session has remained open. And then they say, like, transfer all of the money out of this account. We can tell that these are our two independent voices because of that passive authentication. The second type of authentication is video. So in a world where you, know, you and I are, are maybe on a live Zoom and we can see each other's faces, there are enough sort of new algorithms that are both generating, but also detecting things like deep fakes. So being able to make sure that um, the person on the other end is truly who they say they are and you're not being rerouted or find yourself in an awkward situation where you're not exactly sure of that trust relationship between the two parties. There can be video authentication using sophisticated uh, algorithms in that sense. And then a final one is a little bit more niche, but especially in the web chat world, we can do something like um, either 
rejection of existing or previous authentication or disauthentication based on keystrokes. So in fact, keystroke is very much like a fingerprint. Most people have a unique way of typing on their keyboard or even um, even on their mobile device. And being able to track and determine if, the, if those keystrokes are in line, you can either disauthenticate, so remove them from the whatever they've done previously and kind of kick them out of their live session, or you can just ensure. So maybe, um, can you please say back this token that I'm going to send via SMS? So I'd say those are really two, the two big areas, which was what I mentioned earlier, which was the, the CRM sort of uh, recommendation engine. And then the second one is, is really around authentication. The authentication part, I think as this company called Nuance Communication, had just been bought by Microsoft. They are actually really, really big in doing this. In fact, it is to the financial services, but I'm sure you are well aware of that. The regional director, CTO of Australia, he actually was on the podcast a couple of months ago. That's <laughs> really? amazing. Yeah. Now, in that sense, I want to ask you new tools that you are exploring, but on what you guys are already offering. What makes the solution that you guys are offering unique or different from other conversational tools available in the market? It's a great question, and I'm glad I get to speak about it. Always helps for sales. I would say we have a handful of differentiators. And the first one is that, like I shared, we're a startup being incubated in a large organization. And one of the things that that larger organization offers is a wealth of knowledge, wealth of experience, and a wealth and a very large network in that market already. So IMS traditional, the, the non-startup aspect of the business has over 200 clients in existence that are using this pre-existing service. So just in the financial services, if, if not more. So that number probably isn't even right. It's probably more. And then having those relationships, we've been able to pick the brains of some of our really strong relationship partners, our existing sales and marketing teams. So when we came in and, and wanted to kick off this new project, there was already a ton of information and the product roadmap was already sort of just sitting there waiting to be activated. That's the first thing. So we really had a, a strong momentum going into the development process of our new uh, service offering. And the second one is one that I am personally making it my mission as both a software user and ha having had previous experiences in customer success and customer service that we really want to make the end user experience of our software as seamless and as, as easy, but also as practical as possible. So we're developing a solution that will be owned by a credit union or a community bank, which will then be rebranded, packaged, and shared with their customers. So in doing so, we're very much being white labeled as an organization. The IMS brand may not be known to the end customer. However, what that means though, is that on a day-to-day -day basis, either IMS needs to be heavily involved in every software deployment, or the actual software needs to be so intuitive and easy to use where the financial institution employees can easily pull the levers, press the buttons, and make natural language processing work, which is a lot easier said than done. So really, I think for us, the differentiator is what we're calling our dialogue content management system. This is an area where Credit unions and, and community bank employees can actually input chest and training data for the, for the bot, as well as dictate and determine exactly what the bot says and how it says it under different circumstances. Things that are, let's say, spoken one way on the telephone maybe need, may need to be spoken differently on the web chat, or maybe on the web chat, instead of listing things out, they're displayed as an HTML table, or maybe they're even in a nice pie chart. Potentially, if you need to speak a routing number, you want to make sure you don't say the bank's routing number is 1,235,325. That's nonsense. You want to make sure that it's properly encoded. So we have this dialogue management system that allows for the flexibility of channel plus a host of other opportunities so that the experience for the end user is as flexible as possible, but also as practically implemented as possible by the service, the service organization itself. So really that's for us, I think our special sauce. I want to go back a little bit about the product development as this question just popped up in my head, if that's okay. The product development, I'm easily, or do you guys plan to export and sell your products outside of United States? And if so, from the data science perspective, how easily would you have to and from the product perspective, how would you go and configure your product so that you can easily 
have the same call engine and then train the model so that it would cater for different, it has different nuances, different terminology being used in all those different jurisdictions so that when you do that, it will be so easy in a way that from the product development perspective, you can easily configure, rebuild everything from scratch. Absolutely. I'm so happy you asked this question. So this is something that we definitely did our best to implement in a world where we know multiple languages are definitely going to be something we will encounter without even leaving the safety of the United States. So in the US, especially in certain areas, you are just as likely to encounter someone that speaks Spanish as you are someone that speaks English. So our dialogue content management system needs to be able to support, support multiple languages. Now we've implemented today such that all you need to, to do is just um, say like, I would like to speak in Spanish or habla español or some sort of trigger mechanism that would, tra that would transition you from English to Spanish. But definitely in a future state, we would love to have one of two things happen. One, a data processing mechanism by which it would not only indicate that there is a foreign language being spoken, but actually launch into that language. So using something like a real-time translation service to take our existing content and immediately translate. My only concern there is I don't think that we're quite there yet. I don't think those, those services are really great without some sort of audit process. So what we have done though, is in our content management system, allowed for multiple languages to be offered by sort of pivoting the portal in such a way where you augment all of the different scenarios that you're able to cover with our services. And then you can switch to the alternative language that you want to encode. And you can go ahead and dictate all of those additional sayings and phrases in the third party, either using something like a translation service, like a third party translation service, or if you have somebody on staff that speaks that language natively, they can go ahead and, and see side by side the English version that they, they need to go and augment an additional um, foreign language. I will say we've only at this point so far done research with Romance languages. So the traditional Roman alphabet, so non, I'm sorry, Cyrillic alphabet. So those types of additional characters that would need additional types of processing, something like Chinese or Japanese would definitely be something that we would need to explore further. But I'm, I'm confident that, that there are those types of um, natural language understanding models that can do some of the same entity extraction, but certainly... I am I'm not an expert in that field, so I will probably cut it off at that point because uh, I'm, I'm out of my depth on that one. <laughs> That's okay. I'm glad you shared some of those things. That is really If I were to ask you that if you were to suggest one other industry that benefit from the work that you guys do at IMS with NLP, what industry would that be? Yeah, so we do have one other customer that we're actually working with today. So I think that they are a great example of, of where we can see ourselves once we've really made a good foothold in the financial industry and that's healthcare. And I really want to make sure that immediately when you, when you hear healthcare, you're probably thinking of your bot doctor. I really want to clarify that is not what I mean when I say healthcare specifically, I think there's a ton of opportunity in the administrative side of healthcare, either, you know, setting up appointments, working with insurance agencies and that third party negotiating of, of costs in different countries. And certainly it's, it's different with universal healthcare and things like that. But I know in the US, it can be very complicated, but all of those ultimately are rules-based and anything that's a rules-based engine, we can facilitate pretty seamlessly using a conversational interface. Obviously when there are things where judgment is involved, that's still where you would need someone to either augment the pipeline as a, some sort of like human in the loop kind of conversation where um, a human can oversee how the bot is by the bot is reacting and either pull the bot out of the conversation and insert themselves in, or in hindsight, be able to change the way that the bot has operated because of those either mistakes or oversteps in the judgment type of um, world. But I would say that an immediate step would be to also augment telemedicine. So today, because of COVID, a lot of doctors and a lot of services have moved online and you can actually have a face-to-face -face with a doctor. And by no means am I saying remove the doctor and insert a bot, but what you can do is you can have a bot actually listen in on the conversation and make or surface insights and recommendations to the doctor who can then take that information and either throw it away because maybe they know everything or consider those as, as opportunities where they may have overlooked or missed something based on the patient's history, medical details, or something that they shared that the doctor had overlooked, but the bot flagged as important in that context. So that's, the, it's also, I think a great opportunity where our bot could really play an important role with some of our existing customers, but also um, 
uh, something outside of health, um, something that's a little bit outside of uh, the typical financial industry that we're currently playing in. I love that idea. I think that really comes out to what I call the man and the machine approach, but not really replacing the man and not the is really combining the best of the both worlds because we are good at certain things that the bot are still developing, whereas bot is good at processing large amount of information where we human may not be able to that they can. <laughs> Agreed. This brings us to almost the end of the interview. And this go-to question for every single of my guests. Number one, what is your most important first principle? Okay. I knew this was coming. I've, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and uh, <laughs> I was really excited. This. So I, first of all, before I can answer your question, I'm going to go on a, on a side. I love the whole idea of first principle thinking. I've definitely something that I've really clung to over the last couple of years. For me, that first principles approach is really at the heart of any good analysis that someone undertakes in analytics or data science. I mean, it really has to do with sort of this, what is the actual problem we're trying to solve? Anyone in analytics knows that someone will come up to you and just ask for data and you can either just give it to them and have them walk away. But really what you should be doing is asking why they want it. Because in my experience, 75% of the time, they're not asking for the right thing, or they think they know what the problem is, but they don't really. So with first principle thinking, I think you can really get to the root of the problem. So my first principle that I really like to stick to, and, and hopefully those on my team maybe will listen in on this, they know that I really stick to this one. And it's always try to solve for the general case. And let me uh, share a little bit about why I kind of came to that and why it's so important for me. And especially in our day-to-day -day work, I once took a course in mathematics. Um, specifically, it was, a, it was a course called Introduction to Mathematical Proof, where you're formalizing your conclusions based on logical steps, axioms. This is sort of, sort of what um, Aristotle, and Pythagoras is all about, right? Proving out something logically and infallibly. An example might be for this triangle, prove that X is true. That's sort of the whole point of the class. But the most ingenious thing happened in that class. The professor said, you can achieve a B if you solve the proof. That's what you get. You get a B. But you can get an A if you can generalize the solution to solve more than just the case in the prompt. So for instance, for this triangle, prove that X is true, we'll give you a B. But if you can say for all triangles, prove that X is true in all cases, you can get an A. So I really like to try to problem solve in that way to figure out what is being asked. How can I abstract away the specifics of the, the request and see if there's an underlying thing that's going on that I can solve more generally so that I don't only just solve this ad hoc case of this, this tactical problem. I can strategically try to anticipate other similar problems and head those off ahead of time. And being in, in the product and, and research and development phase of our organization right now, it's been critical and, and really helped in our, in our architectures for how we've solved a lot of the conversational nuance and, and those types of problems. I can't help but to visualize how the code you guys are building would look like already <laughs> in a way that it almost anticipates a lot of the other possible problem that may come up while you're solving that. Absolutely. We have a lot of, um, we have like a lot of idioms at work when people say things that are either meaningless or are silly. So if someone says, what's, what's my savings account balance, like a very common one. So it has to be able to pull out the word savings, but maybe the person says, what's my potato account balance. And then we always say like, what will the system do when they say potato? What will we do with that information? So another one is, um, if you're on the phone and someone asks for a picture of a cat, what will our system do? And we like to try to figure out these sort of um, knowledge experiments and to try to see what the system will do because it's, it is based in AI. So there is a deterministic path. We just don't yet always know what's going to be when, when they get these kind of odd inputs. I can't help, sorry, Ben, but to relate that to the Zappos, the online retailer that start selling shoes and the founder were big on the Literally, there are stories about where their customer actually called to their call center to order the pizza and the call center would actually help them to place the order of the pizza as well. <laughs> yeah. so you say, hey, we are not. Are you going to do that for your bots? <laughs> I would love to. I mean, there is absolutely nothing that says that our bot couldn't just call Siri and be like, hey, Siri, how would you handle this? And, uh, oh, you know what's funny? I actually, Siri just activated on my phone. I, the irony here is that I, I actually don't really like Siri all that much. Sorry. Sorry, Apple. But 
our bot is handles a lot of those things that Siri doesn't do well. It really, all I do is I, all we do as a development organization is we just try to remove all the rough edges that we, we see in technology today and, and try to generalize them. <laughs> now, my last question for you, a book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have. Okay. I would say I do read quite a bit. So there are probably 45 books I'd want to recommend, but I won't list them off. And in fact, every summer, my family really makes fun of me because I read textbooks on the beach on vacation and they find that to be very strange, but I find it to be very helpful because my, my head is clear and I can really focus on the material. But in following up on my first principle, which was always try to generalize the cases, I would actually highly recommend I mean, I wish I'd read this as a teenager, the book called How to Read a Book. It's by Charles Van Doren. It has increased my enjoyment of reading and the retention of the content. So you could say that I generally solve for reading. So how to read a book, how to read a book. That's my recommendation of a book. It's the most meta, meta book recommendation. Love it. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on to the podcast and share all your knowledge, especially in the world of the NLP and uh, the product development. I think product development is something that I'm excited about. It's really about how to configure the product to be as efficient as possible, but also as to painless as possible. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much again. And uh, great to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me.